hello everybody. My name is Jamie Gade and I'm a member of the Climate Action Commission here in Iowa City. Um, and welcome to this Beat the Heat Climate Fest event. Um, as many of you know, this past July we had over 30 volunteers drive predetermined sites with sensors attached to their car to measure temperatures across um, the city to identify urban heat islands in Iowa City. Um, we're excited to share those preliminary results with you today, and I'm also very excited to hear about the results there. Um, we have representatives here from the National Weather Service and Johnson County Public Health to talk more about what this means and why this matters. Um, but first, we'll share a little film documenting the efforts that the volunteers did back in July. Um, without their help, we wouldn't be here today learning about this. Iowa City has acquired a new tool in the fight against climate change. The Spot the Hat campaign was meant to help us determine the location of urban heat islands in Iowa City and Cedar Rapids. For several years, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, has been working with communities to take part in its urban heat island mapping campaign. Urban heat islands are the phenomenon where the built environment, including roads, buildings, and especially parking lots, absorb and re-radiate heat throughout the day, making those areas much hotter than the surrounding community. So that can negatively impact the health and safety of people, especially the young, elderly, and those with respiratory and other health conditions. In order to collect this data, local volunteers were recruited to help. Having community buy-in was a key factor in this process. If there's going to be any change, whether it be locally or globally, it kind of has to start at the smallest level, starts at the micro level. People buy in, they believe that they can make a change, that they can do something. As always, Iowa City answered the call with people of all different walks of life. I'm a university student here at Iowa, and I am pretty interested in remote sensing aspects of sustainability where, yeah, you take data from around the town and then use it to improve city infrastructure. So I teach AP Environmental Science at City High School and I always encourage my students to get involved and so I was excited to actually be able to get involved in some citizen science projects around the city. One thing all these volunteers had in common is that they had each experienced the impacts of climate change on some level. Weather events that are just not happening usually, like inches of rain in a, in a day versus inches over a week, and it just, you can just tell something's different. I think everyone in the world has been infected to some extent. I mean, everyone in Iowa experienced extreme heat, drought, the derecho came through. There's been a lot of impacts that we've experienced. So, how do you find and map urban heat islands? Specialized sensors had to be mounted on vehicles to record temperature, humidity, time, and location. There were five different routes in total. Volunteers drove each of these routes at three different times of the day, 6 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. All that data collected by our citizen scientists was then sent off to our partners at Kappa Solutions to be compiled into an interactive heat map. Once completed, this map will help us identify heat islands and look for ways to provide relief in the impacted areas. Urban heat islands can be mitigated by planting trees and other natural vegetation, green roofs, and reflective materials on roofs and buildings. All this information will be available for the public to view on our website, icgov.org keepcool. Anytime you get people involved as a positive, this kind of lets you get involved and see the behind the scenes and understand, oh, this may be why I have to run my air conditioning five, <laughs> five times more than my neighbor does who has two trees in his yard and I don't have any. I think it's important for regular people like me to understand the science behind kind of what's going on in climate change and things like that. Making it so the knowledge is accessible for everyone is also very important. The more aware people are, um, the better off it is for everyone. And so when people realize that there's a problem and they can realize how we can come together and come up with solutions, the more effective it's going to be. And so I think it's very powerful to incorporate as many people as you can in projects like this. With this new tool and the support of our residents, we're now better equipped to beat the heat. 
I'm thankful to live in a community like Iowa City that cares so much about its people and its community and that they give opportunities to people to do work like this. The world isn't the same as it was 10, 20 years ago, before I was alive. I don't know what that world looks like. And I'm never going to, but I can change the world or try to do my part to make the world a better place for my future. That was great. Um, is anyone in this room that was part of the volunteer efforts? Great, would you, yeah, would you want to stand up too? We can give you a round of applause. Let's do it, it's great. <laughs> Thank you for your, for your work, that's great. They trained us well and it was really engaging. Wonderful, that's great to hear. Well, um, we'll be sharing those results, some preliminary results today from that effort. Um, so thanks again. Um, before we do hear the results, we'll have um, a representative from Johnson County Public Health here to talk a little bit about heat awareness and why it's important and how to stay safe um, no matter where you live in the city. So Nate Savage is a recent graduate from the University of Iowa. He's been living in the Johnson County community for about five years now. He started finishing, um, he's finished his undergraduate and graduate studies in public health. Um, concurrently, Nate has been working his way up at Johnson County Public Health through a variety of positions, like contact tracing during COVID, um, and most recently was hired full-time as their emergency preparedness planner. So Nate is looking forward to connecting with the community and spreading the appropriate public health recommendations. Um, today specifically discussing staying safe in extreme heat. So please welcome Nate Savage from Johnson County Public Health to the podium. All right, hello everybody. Thanks for attending. I, I'm Nate Savage. I uh, do work here at Johnson County Public Health. And here to talk to you guys a little bit about uh, climate change and uh, some extreme heat preparedness. I, I wanted to bring up climate change in this discussion because this will be changing how we prepare for extreme heat. This changes our weather patterns. Um, this changes, uh, it's gonna lead to longer and more severe heat waves. And it's important to be aware of this and to have an understanding of how this uh, affects the climate and how this affects our preparedness going forward. So I, I won't be breaking down all these diagrams, but I just kind of want to show you guys uh, some good uh, some good pictures. But the greenhouse effect uh, it essentially describes the process in which humans heat up uh, the planet. And this is through uh, radiation that comes down. And then, as you can see in the sun here, it, it bounces back off. But with humans and uh, our carbon dioxide emissions, not all of it is able to bounce back off. And a lot of it does stay trapped here. Um, in the atmosphere and on planet Earth. And then, uh, so it is natural for uh, uh, solar radi radiation to reflect off Earth's surface and go back out into space. But with our carbon dioxide emissions, it does trap the radiation from escaping the planet and a lot of it does stay around planet Earth and it heats up our planet. Um, and some of these graphs I've attached, which uh, they're not super zoomed in, but I hope you can kind of understand the picture. But We've had record-breaking carbon dioxide emissions, which have caused uh, the highest levels of carbon dioxide atmosphere concentration that uh, has been recorded in the last 800,000 years. So we are uh, doing record-breaking record levels of uh, CO2 emissions, and this is negatively impacting our planet, heating it up. It is changing our weather patterns, and it is leading to more extreme, extreme heat. Um, these carbon dioxide emissions, uh, as you can see in what I've uh, bullet pointed here, it's increased the land surface air temperature, the sea surface temperature, tropospheric temperature, uh, and as well as our sea level, all while our uh, glacier masses have been uh, downsizing. At our current projections, at 2100, the Earth is expected to be 5 degrees hotter. So 2.7 to 3.1 degrees Celsius, that's around five degrees for Fahrenheit. Uh, but yeah, when you start preparing for that, because it's 75 years away and five years, or five degrees hotter is quite a bit. How this is impacting us right now is the last 
five years have been the five hottest years uh, in recorded history. It goes 2016, 2019, 2015, 2017, and 2018. So there is definitely a pattern of uh, extreme heat. And then in Des Moines, Iowa specifically, we were expecting the number of days above 90 degrees to double by 2050. So I bring this up so uh, we can be more prepared and we have a better idea of that this is something that's going to be impacting Iowa. This will be happening everywhere in the entire world uh, and planet will be warming up. But Iowa especially is something that this is something that um, directly impacts us. So uh, for extreme heat preparedness, before the heat wave, uh, we really emphasize making a plan, starting that conversation, reaching out to community members, friends and family. Uh, but please, we just want uh, you guys to be discussing this and to have a, a plan in place. Um, before the heat wave, uh, learn how to stay hydrated, learn uh, what the different people in your family need, how much water and food they would need. Uh, emergency kits, I'll be uh, running through in a couple slides later, um, but it's important to have the right materials on, on hand for that. Learning some of the emergency skills, which I will also be discussing, uh, some of the heat illnesses. And then it's really important to have a good communication network and receiving the right alerts from weather services, um, uh, governmental services, uh, just staying in the loop of what we might be expecting. And then during the heat wave, uh, while it is extremely hot out, uh, it's important to stay hydrated, and that's through water and sports drinks. Uh, staying cool, uh, stay in air conditioning if possible. However, we realize not everyone does have air conditioning. Um, if you don't have air conditioning, uh, please reach out and find the cooling centers near you and your community. There's uh, cooling centers all around us. Um, but if not possible, it's kind of a little fact here is uh, be wary of uh, what fans do. Fans do recirculate the air and you do feel a little bit cooler, but it doesn't cool the temperature. So we do want you guys to stay cool, stay indoors and find air conditioning if possible. Uh, lightweight, loose clothing is a great way to um, not be overwhelmed by the heat. And also taking a cool shower or bath. And then lastly, uh, preventing heat illness, knowing the signs and symptoms uh, and how to treat someone who is feeling ill. Then after the heat wave, just take care of yourself. We really stress that uh, you get, uh, health is many different components and you may be stressed, anxious, exhausted, but it's okay to feel that way. Um, there are resources out there to help. The Disaster Distress Helpline, um, I'm happy to send this PowerPoint to anyone after who would like to see it, but there are helplines and call centers out there to, that can help with um, stress and exhaustion. And for uh, emergency preparedness kit, um, for extreme heat specifically, uh, some, good, some good things to pack would be a gallon of water. Um, uh, the average person drinks one gallon of water a day. So we do want to see you plan out ahead for multiple members of the family for multiple days. Food, uh, several day supply of non-perishables, backup chargers and batteries, a weather radio, also a battery powered or hand crank radio if uh, one line of communication goes down. Flashlight, first aid kit, uh, some cash or checks, and also it's really important to think about specific family needs. Uh, that could be a variety of things, but it's important to think about the unique needs that uh, each member of your family has and to plan accordingly for that. And then heat related illness, this will be the last thing I'll, I'll be running through, but uh, the three main types of uh, heat-related illnesses are heat cramps, heat exhaustion, and heat stroke. Heat cramps and heat exhaustion are a little less severe, um, but heat stroke is, is deadly, and uh, we do say that you call 911 right away. Uh, some signs and symptoms to look out for, for just cramps and exhaustion, uh, you'll see a lot of heavy sweating. Um, but in heat stroke, we're actually going to see uh, kind of hot and dry skin in a really high body temperature. So kind of understanding the differences between cramps and exhaustion versus stroke, um, it's important to know. And then uh, what to do for uh, heat cramps or heat exhaustion. Move them to a cool place, uh, hydrate them. Uh, but if, is, if it is more serious and they have a really high body temperature, they aren't sweating as, as, they, as they should be, they're feeling uh, dizzy or uh, some confusion, do call 911 right away and uh, 
bring in the right resources to help you deal with that and take care of that person. And that's all I have for you guys. Thank you very much, Nate. Yes, I think we'll take questions at the end. So just, just hold on to that question and we will get to you. Okay. So next, I would like to introduce you to Tim Gross. Um, Tim is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Davenport, Iowa. He received his Bachelor of Science in Meteorology in 2010 at Western Hills, um, Illinois University or Western Illinois University, um, where he graduated with honors. Tim is the Eastern Iowa and Northwest Illinois Coco Raz Regional Coordinator and the Cooperative Observer Program Lead at the National Weather Service Office. Um, he frequently works with observational data from airports, river gauges, mesonets, and observers in the NWS Davenport County Warning Area. He has installed over 30 temperature and precipitation stations at the National Weather Service Cooperative um, Observer Program and has trained observers how to take observations. Um, Tim is a climate team member within his office where he occasionally is asked to help answer questions from his peers and the public regarding climate records and data requests. So please welcome Tim with the National Weather Service to the podium. So what I'm gonna talk about today uh, is a program called COCORAS. It's a citizen science program that you guys can use to help document how much precip occurs in your backyard. And I'll also talk about some other citizen science opportunities that you can become a part of. And at the very end, another colleague of mine will talk about the uh, results from the heat, heat study. So what is COCORAS? It is an acronym, uh, stands for Community Collaborative Rain, Hail, and Snow Precipitation Network. Began in 1998 at Colorado State University after a major flash flood event that occurred in Fort Collins in 1997. Uh, over 14 and a half inches of rain fell in 31 hours um, at that university at the Climate Center. Uh, five people were killed and there was a train derailment, just a really bad event. And after that, the Colorado State climatologist, Nolan Dirksen, um, decided to, there's no real network out there that can help document how much rain fell in this big event. So he started this program back in 1998. It is now in all 50 states, also in Canada, and also Puerto Rico and Guam, there are observers in this network. So it's a, like I mentioned, it's a unique nonprofit community-based precip network made up of all volunteers of all ages and backgrounds take daily precipitation measurements right in their backyard. Uh, several schools also um, participate in this. In my alma mater at Western Illinois, uh, one of my professors uses this as a way and documents and makes students uh, take readings in this program uh, as while they're taking classes. So observers use low-cost measuring tools, and the rain gauge that we actually have um, on my, in my display over there is going to be uh, uh, raffled off at the end of this uh, um, day. And report the daily observations on an interactive website on kokoraz.org, and then observations are immediately available in map and table form uh, for anyone in the public to view and any other partner federal state um, agencies that they can use. So why COCORAS? Well, precipitation, um, as many of you may know, is highly variable. You can walk after a big summer thunderstorm event on one side of Iowa City and have no rain, and the next side on the west side have one inch or two inches of rain. So it's very important to document this information. Um, and data sources are, and rain gauges are few and far apart. Uh, thunderstorms are, can be in very small spatial scales. And so, you, again, have no rain in one area and a ton of rain in the other. And this program allows us to document uh, rain events and uh, precipitation events across the country. 
measurements from many sources are not always accurate. There are a lot of different precipitation gauges out there that do not measure very accurately. And so uh, the gauge that we have available is a Weather Service approved gauge. And some of our observers in the Cooperative Observer Program uh, use this gauge, especially some of our elderly, because it's very easy to use. And we use this data every day at our office. Uh, also, the COPE-ROS program, as mentioned in the acronym, also collects data about hail. Well, hail, um, there's really not a lot of data out there to help document sizes of hail. Um, and this program allows you to buy a, a simple, low-cost hail pad, and you can measure the size of hail um, that falls um, and document that in your report uh, that can be used by other people. And you can also send significant weather reports within your observation um, to the National Weather Service. And when that occurs um, on the website, we at our office will get an, an alarm uh, that a Kokoraz observer sent a report in, and we can use that to help us um, report storm reports um, during severe weather. Um, that we could give that data out to the media and out to the public as well. So storm reports can save lives. And so the flash flood event in Colorado was on July 30th, 1997. So the main focus of COCORAS is to provide daily precipitation data, both in a map, very interactive map form that has uh, just recently got upgraded and it's really useful um, and in daily table form. Allows uh, people in different agencies and science, scientists to use this data um, to do research um, and also is now recognized by NCEI, which stands for the National Center for Environmental Inter Information, um, after an observer sends its 100th report. Basically, all of the data from airports, um, mesonets, any type of weather data that's out there that you can think of eventually gets archived at NCEI. And a lot of research, uh, climate science research, and any research related to weather um, is archived at this location, including storm data after a big severe weather event. This is where you would go to find data um, from those specific events. As well as educational opportunities, uh, as I mentioned before, a lot of schools use this as a really good educational opportunity for kids to learn about how to take rain measurements in a science classroom. Uh, also, there's various webinars that the COCORAS team at Colorado uh, puts on from different experts within the weather and climate communities that you can listen to that are really um, innovative and you can learn a lot about, about the weather um, partaking in this program. So Kokoraz hopes to one day achieve a network with one observer for once every square mile in urban areas and one observer every 36 square miles in rural areas. That's their, that's their goal. And I also wanted to mention that Kokoraz actually um, has more precipitation real-time reports than any other network within the, within the United States. Um, there is over 10,000 observers that report daily in real time across the country, which is more than the Weather Service's Cooperative Observer Program. So this data is being used and it's widely um, in all, all 50 states. So how can you become part of the network? Quite simple. Um, on the website, which is, I'll show in a second uh, what it looks like, um, you can sign up, obtain a gauge, a plastic rain gauge, view it some training slideshows just to understand how to report when uh, most observers report in the morning typically a time between 6 and 8 a.m. Um, set up the gauge in a good location and also just start observing and there's options to do multi-day precipitation reports as well uh, there are observers in our area um, that report seasonally that don't necessarily like to report in the winter. They'll just report in the summer, which is okay as well. Any and all data is good for us um, and can be used, um, but you can also report snowfall as well, and the training slides will go through that as well. 
So this is what the website looks like, and this was take. I gave this screenshot a couple, um, couple weeks ago. Um, 9,150 daily reports received as 1150 across the entire United States. So a very, very big program, and it's coming up on its 25th anniversary um, this coming summer. Um, there are apps on both Apple and Android that you can use to send in your reports. You can also just use the website as well uh, to send in reports, which is what I do. I've been a, an observer in this program since 2000, uh, 2013. Uh, there's also a YouTube channel with a lot of really great videos of how to observe. Um, the Weather Talk webinar series, that's kind of the different things that you can learn about and different experts within the field so that you can just learn more about weather um, and climate because they do have uh, climate folks on there as well and significant weather events. Sometimes there'll be a person from the Storm Prediction Center that talks about all the severe weather that occurred within the year as an overview, which is really neat to, to listen to. So another uh, way a citizen science can help us um, in terms of weather is help us report precipitation type. And as we're coming into the cold season soon, eventually we're gonna see some Freezing rain, snow, sleet um, across our area, and this is incredibly important for us to know when this is occurring um, for us as meteorologists at the Weather Service to help document when the change is, when the change is occurring. And this graphic here kind of explains how warm air aloft can help us, um, that helps cause us different types of precipitation that reaches the ground, and that, just one degree change in the warm air aloft can help dictate what we see on the ground. And getting ground truth is really important for us as meteorologists. So a way to do this is a, another app at that URL that's listed there called MPing. Um, this app allows you to uh, report precipitation type. And when you send in your report, we will get an alert on our on our workstations at work as well, um, that'll pop up on our radar, radar screens to see, okay, we're actually seeing sleet here or freezing rain. And then um, we can use that to help improve our forecast and get the word out, especially if it's freezing rain and causing, causing issues. Another way that the Weather Service offers is that folks can get involved with is in storm spotters, storm spotter classes and become a storm spotter for, for us. Uh, every year, the National Weather Service in our office, we will uh, perform and give out free classes about how to storm spot for us. Um, usually, that's usually in early March and early April. We'll put on our website at weather.gov slash DVN slash spotters there, um, the schedule of when our classes are available. Um, typically, uh, people ages, I think Matt's eight, eight or up, get the best information about, about the class, but you learn about storm structure, uh, how to report to us, um, and how you can um, help us get severe weather reports um, to us and to the media and then eventually people can know what actually occurred during severe weather. So that is all I have for the Kokoras aspect of the presentation. And I would like to introduce another colleague of mine, uh, Matt Friedline. He's our science operations officer um, from the Weather Service. One of our managers, he'll talk about some of the results uh, from our urban heat island. Thank you, Tim, and uh, thank you there to Jamie, Megan, Dan, and Sarah for inviting us at the National Weather Service in the Quad Cities to come on out today uh, to this really unique event, uh, Climate Fest here. Uh, this is just going to be a very uh, brief talk adding on to uh, uh, Tim's here about some of the preliminary results from the Urban Heat Island campaign 
uh, from this, this summer. Again, some of the uh, basics here, uh, some of you are very aware who volunteered and then uh, from the video that we saw at, at the beginning of this. But uh, the goal there listed in the second bullet to in increase awareness of heat and then in turn preparedness for heat, taking the right actions. Uh, we in the National Weather Service are, of course, tasked with analyzing and forecasting the weather, issuing the warnings that you know, but just as important as forecasting is communicating it. And uh, that's, that's a big part of what we do, and, and that includes heat safety uh, for, for um, uh, heat episodes, which we had several of uh, this summer. Uh, we had, uh, uh, especially the one in late August, was, was very marked, uh, hitting the triple digits at some locations for the first time in a decade there. Um, with the Urban Heat Island campaign, uh, the Weather Service was part of this. NOAA is our parent agency, so NOAA, NOAA is, was a part of this. Uh, but in the Weather Service, uh, our end of things, we uh, utilize climatology uh, to provide uh, when would be a good target time, a broad time, uh, to do this, just using the historical record there. Looking for days, of course, that are hot, uh, 85 or warmer. Uh, was what the field campaign uh, wanted to look for. So we look for when's that the most frequent. Our normal high uh, peaks right around that in uh, mid-July through early August. That's about as warm as our normal high gets before it starts uh, the slippery descend into a winter that we are now on. Uh, we're also looking for days that did not have much wind. Uh, it helped with the, the sampling there, not to have much wind. Also, not much for cloud cover. And then finally, and the trickiest one, uh, days that are less frequency of precipitation. Uh, so the, the other three really line up well uh, from uh, uh, late June all the way through mid-August. But the precipitation one, of course, is, is tricky and depends on, depends on a lot there. Um, but the best time looked to be that mid to late July uh, window and, uh, of course, is when that was conducted. Um, and as we got closer to that time in a more targeted um, forecast there, uh, starting um, seven, eight days in advance, just looking at the general pattern and getting an idea that it looks like it, it will be warm, um, warmer than normal, so we feel comfortable that we'll get over 85. Uh, but the precipitation, again, that's, that's the challenge. Uh, we had a dry summer. Uh, we've really been dry since, since the spring. Uh, uh, we went quite a stretch in May into mid-June without much rain at all, and then, and then another stretch here that, that we're basically in. Uh, but July, if you remember, got a little bit unsettled uh, and, and active there. And we had a few, few days with storms. We were just talking about the Ragbri event, how they were impacted by weather there. So uh, that was one of the challenges with, with this, uh, because you may have storms around, they push out rain-cooled air, and that would uh, not be the best for, for this study here. Uh, so that was one of the, uh, the challenges. But thankfully, um, uh, things went well, and the, the data collected uh, seems like it, that it, was, uh, it, was, it has high integrity and can be used uh, for, for further uh, studies. So um, one of the things, too, I'll just mention with our heat preparedness in the Weather Service is it's well documented that urban centers uh, retain the heat uh, longer, uh, and, uh, longer both uh, at night and just in a heat episode uh, in general. So uh, in the weather service, we're being more and more cognizant of uh, vulnerable or more susceptible groups. And in urban heat islands, that can especially be the case. And sometimes you may think of the big mega cities, the Chicago's, the Kansas cities, or maybe in Des Moines, um, but mid-sized cities uh, experience this as well. And the preliminary results, uh, in, in, in my opinion, show show just that too and, and results from the past six years of this study have indicated that as well here. So uh, this is uh, hot off the presses from the, uh, the CASA group here and uh, this is uh, an uh, uh, evening uh, look at things. So this was the 7 p.m. I believe it was the 7 p.m. look at uh, the data that was collected, and these routes look probably familiar to, uh, to the three of you uh, volunteers here, um, but this is uh, where the observations were taken, and they were uh, taken every second, one second frequency, the observation platforms updated here. So uh, you get uh, very high resolution uh, details here on, on the routes here. So this again was in the evening, I'll come back to that here, but uh, about an eight degree difference from the far outlying areas 
the far outlying, less built-up areas to the, the urban core here. Uh, some of the cooler areas here, you'll note on the far north side, you'll see a satellite image as part of the background. Uh, so that's more heavily treed. You can see the uh, park here too. And so that's some of the cooler areas uh, were noted there. Obviously the, the core here of Iowa City uh, on the warm end of that spread. The actual temperature at this time was in the mid-80s. Uh, on, on this particular day, the high was only in the upper 80s, so it showed it only dropped a couple degrees, and, and, and that we know is an issue with the urban heat cores. They retain that heat longer. Um, in, in the nighttime, we, we keep our heat through long-wave radiation, and the urban uh, heat islands, the, the cement, the pavement, the buildings, they absorb that heat through the day, and they radiate it out through, uh, through the night. And uh, with the nights being short, uh, in the summertime, this can be a particular, uh, particular problem uh, for heat safety. But you can see that uh, differences there along the route, and even in, in outlying areas, you'll see fluctuations here of a few degrees, and, uh, and that's, that's very common. You may see that in your, your, just your regular car thermometer driving around, especially if you get a little dip into a creek bed or a, a river bed, and you'll notice that it may dip a little bit. But an urban area here, eight degrees difference there just um, in the early evening. And then this uh, here, is using uh, some model data, um, machine learning uh, that has been built on uh, some of the, the studies uh, before, some of the earlier campaigns, and then using the data that was taken uh, to sort of interpolate the values and some other uh, uh, means to kind of fill in those gaps there. So you can get sort of a, a picture here, a mosaic of the observed data. Now this is using, uh, uh, from what I understand, the morning, the afternoon, and the evening all together, and it's the difference, again, I think is the big thing to take out here. So that uh, difference on all three of those times, an eight and a half a average there uh, difference be between the heart of the urban core and the outlying areas there, the far west, the northeast, the southeast there. Uh, so some marked differences there and in, in, uh, fluctuations too uh, over short, uh, uh, short spaces there. Uh, Tim mentions precipitation varies a lot. Temperature can uh, as well here. And I think it's especially pronounced uh, as you get into the the evening and nighttime hours there when, when the long wave radiation starts to drive things. And again, that urban heat island really holds on onto the heat there longer. So those differences, especially when you get in heat waves, uh, like we had in late August in that, where the daytime temperatures in the 90s, uh, the heat indices are in the triple digits, uh, and you have that multiple days, that, uh, that uh, uh, lack of reprieve at nights. That's really what we look for in the Weather Service when we issue those excessive heat warnings. Did you hear about those are multiple days of heat during the day, but, but a really big key is that uh, no reprieve at night. And for uh, folks that do not have air conditioning um, and maybe low-income housing, for instance, where there's no air conditioning or lack of ventilation, those groups are particularly vulnerable and something that we're cognizant of in, in the weather service. So this work will go uh, to help us come back in time to help the weather enterprise that is forecasting and that deals with preparedness too. So we're we're excited about that in time, but uh, but yeah, it was really eye-opening to see a mid-sized city here have such uh, sharp temperature differences from the outlying areas to the the urban core. But this campaign has has noted that in data over the years, and uh, here we see that right here in Iowa City. So that is all I have, uh, Jamie, and thank you. Thank you very much, Tim and Matt. Um, these results are really interesting, and I'm very excited to see the full report when that, when that comes out. Um, we will take questions now, and if I could have all of the speakers come up, I think um, I'm actually gonna bring some chairs around. If you wanna kinda sit here, we can take questions. Um, but if you have questions, I will come around to you with this microphone, um, and then we will have you ask your question into the microphone. Feel free to raise your hand whenever, oh, there we go, wonderful. Feel free to raise your hand if you've got a question, okay. Okay, is this on at all? Can you hear me okay? No. Let's see. Here we go, okay, I can hear it. Wonderful, yes. Yes. 
this is a public health question. Is there a map of the cooling centers for the county? Um, there should be a directory of that. I, I'm not sure off the top of my head uh, what that's on, but it should be on our website and it should be uh, available to the public. Yeah. Um, there should be a list. I'm not sure if it's mapped out, but there should be addresses connected to all those locations. A map would be a great idea, though. Yeah, I like that idea. All right, yeah. Thank you, all of you. Um, I noticed on the last map that the core of downtown Iowa City area was red, and then down on Highway 6 a little ways was a red dot. Was that a shopping center area, or how do you account for that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure on that, and uh, I, I think they'll be able to, uh, when, when the final results come out, explain that more. But uh, it could very well be uh, something like that that probably has a lack of, of trees and, and a high concentration, widespread of, of pavement. That very well could be it, yep. Was the eight and a half degree difference a peak difference or an average difference through the study? Yeah, on on the uh, the evening one there, that was at at that time that evening, that seven p.m. one, and then the the last map was, as I understand it, the the morning, afternoon, and evening average together there of an of an eight and a half. So that morning time too, it's six a.m. The sun is up in in late July uh, there at that time, but it it's probably still almost similar to a nighttime observation. I'm sure the difference is pretty large. I uh, had lived and worked in the Chicago area before moving to the Quad Cities, and that's obviously a big urban heat area, and we'd regularly have about 15-degree difference from downtown Chicago out to like Aurora, Illinois, you know that. So um, double-digit differences uh, in, in a mid-sized city wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. They're, they're really heightened as you, as you get into this time of year, actually, where you still can have warm days, but the nights are getting along in the outlying areas, if it's clear and, and cool, so that, that, that heat escapes quick. Um, and uh, we can have some big temperature differences noted uh, in, in that time. Yeah. Snow cover is another thing that can make a big temperature difference, too. Yeah. Uh, is there any uh, intent to overlay like census data information on this on this information to try to potentially address some of the environment environmental justice concerns I, I do not know for certain, but um, if, if that, they will do that. But I, I can tell you this data is in a GIS format in, in reading from previous years. They can do all kinds of things with that and, and overlays, and that would make uh, uh, good sense to, to do something like that. Uh, but I, I don't know for certain, yeah. I know that... Um the addresses of the cooling centers is important to publish in the newspaper because older people don't maybe look at all websites. So publish in the newspaper and provide to the senior center staff so they can make a poster of it. And um, then about the census and the heat um, spots, it's the city, and the city can use the heat spot data with the census data to um, decide, make decisions about improvements or changes to the city and the services it provides. And that's another thing to have the media, like the newspapers, involved in uh, making articles and uh, publish in local uh, magazines, um, Little Village or other magazines in Iowa City to um, do an article about it to inform the public. You know, a lot of this, what we're talking about, is similar to the previous, quote, natural disaster we had, which was the pandemic. So people had to change their lifestyles uh, and go out less and provide for their living in their house, you know, uh, quarantine, 
to stay safe. And so addressing um, regular chronic um, emergencies, such as heat, for example, we need to use the same kind of mindset. We're going to have to be sheltering and um, changing our lifestyle to be prepared. So we can use that as a guide for the kind of challenges we're going to be facing and how to um, do that as a community and as a nation, of course. Thank you. Respond to, excuse me. Respond to that briefly. Um, I appreciate that that point. Um, yeah, as we um, gather the more final report, um, we will be using that information to um, decide, you know, um, how to better publicize those um, cooling centers and, and develop locations of resilience hubs and those sorts of things. So, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, since the report has to do with heating and cooling and we know how important trees are. Uh, is the city going to use this report in terms of plans for the future, in terms of trees, of course, but other things as well? Well, I mentioned uh, resilience hubs. We um, uh, do hope to um, use this data to help um, determine the, the location of resilience hubs. Um, in terms of tree planting that the city is doing, um, we don't know how that will be used yet, but we hope to coordinate with our forestry division um, to make those determinations of which neighborhoods might uh, benefit um, from additional tree plantings. Uh, speaking of, as long as we're speaking of trees, I do want to plug our Root for Trees program, which just opened up um, earlier uh, this month, where Iowa City residents can receive 50% off the cost of a tree. So if you are an Iowa City resident and would like to put a tree in your yard, mitigate your own little, um, uh, potential heat island, uh, please uh, visit uh, icgov.org slash root for trees. Yes, okay. I saw your hand first. Um, kind of along those lines, I was noticing as I'm looking at the maps, this is a picture of today, and yet development keeps growing and growing and growing. So the areas that are outlying that are not as hot yet will get hotter as more development expands. And so in my mind, I'm linking how does the city or development or planning and zoning and all of these other layers of how we grow as a community coordinate or overlay with what we know about urban heat islands so that we're not continuing to just keep <laughs> expanding the issue, right? It's not just about that urban core that's red, it's like everything that's you know paved and roofed and everything keeps growing or more trees get cut down to build more buildings. So um, that longer term um, coordination of this kind of information, and, and it's more than <clears throat> information perhaps, it's, it's about a, a mindset you know, how do we approach these decision-making in our community? So, thank you. Um, sure, I can uh, try to respond to that as well. Um, that's an, a great point. Um, you know, the, um, the city's not landlocked, it's growing. Um, and as we continue development, um, we might be able to use this data to um, encourage um, mitigating factors such as green roofs uh, or uh, reflective roofs um, um, encourage the use of you know reflective materials in building. Um, I know there are some exciting developments in in pavement material, paving materials um, that are uh, uh, reflective and, and don't retain that as much heat as traditional materials. So that's a great point that we um, um, should keep in mind. Where did I see the? Yes, I saw your hand. You mentioned uh, resilience spots. Did you call them resilience? Oh, resilience hubs. Hubs, yeah. So uh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Sarah, do you want to uh, jump in on that one? <laughs> so, 
So I'm happy to speak about that, actually. Um, I'm Sarah Gardner. I'm the Climate Action Coordinator for the City of Iowa City. And the person who's been answering questions much better than me so far is Danny Bissell, who is our Climate Action Analyst. Um, Resilience Hubs actually is a project that we are um, just starting to roll out. And it actually speaks to a point that was brought up earlier about cooling centers, but also the need to shelter in place, right? And one of the things we know um, from talking to community members and looking at national data is that most people, given the choice, would prefer to shelter in their own homes rather than go sleep in a gymnasium full of strangers for any number of reasons I think we can all imagine, right? Um, and particularly if we think about really vulnerable members of our community, folks who maybe have medical devices in their homes that might be difficult to transport to a cooling center, folks who have medications that they don't want to risk bringing a whole big stock of them with them, you know, they want to stay close at hand. What resilience hubs are meant to do is increase the capacity for neighborhoods to support residents sheltering in place. So they're a place you can go to get key information um, during an event and ahead of event, more importantly. And when an emergency arises, it's also a place where you can get supplies and go back home and then have someone maintain contact with you during the recovery period, right? So that it fills all these important gaps. Um, the senior center that we're in right now, I would argue, would be an excellent example of a potential resilience hub in that it already has strong connections to community members, folks already come here looking for important information, and in the event of an emergency, just as we saw with COVID, it becomes an important center for disseminating information. Um, we all love you. We love that you're connected with the climate office. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say when COVID hit, nobody thought to call the climate office for advice, right? But some of you might have thought to contact the senior center or the neighborhood centers of Johnson County or these other areas. So what we're going to be doing with our Resilience Hub program is helping build up that resilience capacity within those existing organizations. And that's going to take a lot of forms. It's going to um, take the form of providing trainings and discussions like these for the clients they serve. Um, it's going to provide funding to do things like put solar panels on their roofs and battery backup or some sort of generator support so that in an emergency they can continue operating in order to be able to provide these services to community members. And just a lot of ongoing support. We're really excited about it. Um, we're working collaboratively with organizations to develop this program so it's not just what we think would be a good idea for the community but what they're saying they're hearing. Um, from the folks they work with every day. So I would say stay tuned on Resilience Hubs. But I will also mention, as long as we're plugging websites, that the website you saw at the end of the video today, icgov.org slash keepcool, is one where we are going to put the final map from the meat hap, or meat, uh, meat, good Lord. You can tell it's lunchtime. <laughs> and we only had a cheese tray. <laughs> Where we're going to put the heat mapping map for everybody to be able to see publicly because we don't just want this information for ourselves, we want you all to have it. But also, if you go to icgov.org slash keepcool right now, you will see a list of cooling centers and a map. So <laughs> we're at least thinking ahead on that one. So thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Um, did I have a, I think I saw you next. Thank you. Um, now, as for development, um, um, you um, different places. Some are just Johnson County. Some of them are within the city or other city, Coralville and North Liberty, for example. But zoning, zoning restrictions, um, are a way for communities to have input into what sort of development and what kind of restrictions and regulations that development that's being planned or the permits are being applied for have to follow. So innovative new type of zoning restrictions that require, like you were saying, different kind of building materials um, are very important ways that uh, um, we can make a difference. We don't have to say, oh, it's just going to be the way it always is and uh, we don't have any power to make changes, but 
you wouldn't realize that regulations like zoning really can make a difference. That's a great point. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yes, okay. Can we hear okay from this microphone? Okay. Okay. If you hold it close. Okay. So you speak speak loud if you can. I'll try to repeat, but the last um, suggestion was that zoning would be a good uh, way to, you know, make sure that we're not repeating, just developing and developing and creating more heat islands. Um, but zoning, making sure. Yes. Who was the first one? I feel like you were first. Okay. So I have two questions. So for uh, the meteorologist, um, can you describe what the process is with the data collection, that, uh, the data sets that you're um, collecting and analyzing, and then actually what we hear on the news? Um, I get my weather reports from NPR, or sometimes I look on the internet at the various different um, websites. Um, and so what, what is that process of this data and then how, how we might actually get it? Yeah, um, so us meteorologists, we look at a, a wide variety of data sets to do our job. Um, anywhere pertaining from radar data, uh, surface observations from airports, uh, sometimes, like I mentioned, mesonets, so people that have these automated stations at their homes. Uh, we look at that to help us uh, determine what's the temperature, what the precip is, uh, wind gusts, and so forth. Uh, we look at all of that uh, data, and that data is also um, ingested into our forecast models uh, that we use um, that are run on supercomputers um, with the weather service. And it helps us um, get a snapshot of what's currently happening, and then our forecast models can help us uh, create our forecast. So the stuff that you see on the TV, um, they can um, provide their own forecast. They can use our information, um, but we do work very closely with the media, especially uh, in the watch warning advisory timeframe when we issue products. Uh, they they will um, show that information on the television. Thank you. Um, the the other question I had was uh, about the for the heat events and and illness related to heat events. Um, it has there been how could we find data about like I'm sure it wouldn't be available right now but is there data collected in Johnson County on heat related illness and could we find that to see occurrence of heat related illness this summer for example there's not a uh, database or tracking that I know of of reporting heat related illnesses but uh, some of this uh, Spot the Hot uh, data campaign that we've been doing would be a great way to start incorporating that and some ideas for going forward to see where it's happening in the community, what neighborhoods. Um, so yeah, that'd be a really good thing to incorporate with some of this uh, heat mapping technology that we've been using. Yeah, a lot of that data is not publicly reported. So that's, that's where you run into kind of a, an issue with, with getting it. It'd be more likely if someone went to the hospital for it, then you know, it would be from UIHC, if they went there, you know, we would get that that data. Um, I mean, heat-related deaths actually are uh, counted in, in a way. Um, it's hyperthermia, um, so that is that could be a, a reason. You know, medical examiner might have some data on that if if heat-related deaths did occur. Um, but luckily, we haven't had many um, heat-related deaths in Johnson County or um, not. No trend there, so um, yes, and I believe you are the next person. That's the job of the media. The um, newspaper, for example, reporters and um, the TV reporters, they go to the medical centers and get aggregate data that is anonymous but does sell you that. And um, there's been so many natural disasters this year that I'm sure that the media in those look communities where those disasters happen because we can see and read for ourselves how many people died from it. And so it's the job of the media to go to the medical centers and get that information. 
yeah, that'd be great to incorporate for the future. Hopefully we can have some more targeted efforts for specifically uh, extreme heat-related illnesses and deaths. But hopefully we can also overlay this with some mapping and start to see some trends so we can prevent uh, what's about to happen. Uh, I was also just wondering if the raw data from the Spot to Hot event would be available for public use for like other research purposes. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure on that. Yeah, it's public. The raw data, yeah, if that would be publicly accessible, I'm not sure. Yeah, or just res results that they have. I don't know. All right, I think. Okay, yes, I got you. I came here actually with this question. So uh, I'm reassured when it's very cold that there are places and systems in, organized to help people who are unhoused in those extreme circumstances. I'm not sure the same thing is true in the heat, uh, and I wonder what you can tell me about that. So uh, is the police department involved in making sure that there are not people unhoused in the heat who are in danger in the way they would if it were 20 below zero? Yeah, a lot of these would be targeted community efforts. Um, as brought up earlier, uh, IC.gov, it sounds like they do have the list of cooling centers in the community, but that would be uh, kind of the opposite for uh, extreme cold preparedness. The extreme heat preparedness would be these cooling centers where accessible to everyone in the community, uh, it's just best to find the one that's closest to you. has to do with the precipitation um, information you presented. I was kind of surprised looking at the map at the locations. It seemed like the Northeast and Louisiana had like a gazillion locations and there was very few in Colorado and none in California. Um, but the, and a follow-up to that just is that is there a reason why you can't use other networks or other devices? I understand the calibration issue but if but some of that I would think could be standardized so you'd be able to get a lot more. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Kokora is... Hmm? Oh, can, can you repeat that question? Sure. You don't think that... Can you not oh. hear this? Maybe it just kind of depends where you... Yeah, where you hold it. Sure, sure. So would you like to repeat? Okay, sure. <clears throat> so I was a bit... Whoa, so, so I was um, a bit surprised by the map of the locations for the um, recording precipitation because it seemed like they were heavily located in Louisiana, not so much in Colorado, none in California, some in the Northeast. But also was wondering why you couldn't, with some calibration tricks, be able to use some other high-tech networks some of them are private, some of them are public, that are recording these kinds of things rather than relying on the, what is a perfectly legitimate way to do precipitation, probably the best way in some ways. But So that, those are the two questions. Yeah, that, those are good questions. Um, for the first one, uh, that was just one event for precipitation. And so you're going to see your population centers come out pretty easily, especially when there's more of a dense network uh, of people in that area. Um, if I would have listed an active station map of seeing all the active stations that are available, which there are about seven or eight uh, observers in Johnson County that are in a part of this program. Um, but that was just one precipitation example of what the uh, map was. Regarding your second question, uh, Kokoraz does require this gauge because it is a standard standardized gauge and um, that's across the entire network. There are a lot of other precipitation networks out there. Um, that we do use uh, in our weather service operations, but as far as getting um, accurate and concise and consistent data, uh, we we recommend and Kokoraz wants us to use this gauge. Um, and they actually, on their 
on my presentation, they have a frequently asked questions page and that exact question is in there about why they require this gauge instead of why can't I use my automated rain gauge? Well, automated rain gauges do terrible in the winter. I don't know if you've uh, seen that before, but uh, they get clogged and they don't report um, accurate information uh, once the snow um, gets in there and, and so forth. And then they can uh, underestimate very high intense rainfall amounts. Um, and airports even have this problem on occasion as well. Um, and so that's that's the reason why we um, re, uh, they require this gauge. And um, I think that maybe we'll take the, that as the last question. I think we're over time a little bit here. Um, if you have any more questions, I would encourage reach out to um, one of the team members here on the Climate Action Group um, at their website, icgov.org slash climate action. Um, but speaking of rain gauges, we have a door prize of a rain gauge. So um, yes, um, let's see, how did we want to do that again? We have a sticker, but it, I don't believe. Do we have someone that's, no? okay, well there's a Goldie sticker. Um, and if you have that chair that it was on, this, <laughs> this rain gauge is yours. Goldie sticker. The yellow jacket. Yes, that is the one. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'll, I'll get them. <laughs> I'll get the rest of it for you. Well, thank you all for coming out today, and like, let's give everyone else a round of applause here today for presenting.